invite you to be turning to Micah chapter 2. We will be at the end of that today, verses 12 and 13. And I guess I'm doing something different today. I invite you to stand right now. <laughs> Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. God says to Micah, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave by it. Their kings Pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. Let's pray. Father, when we come before you and we come before your word, we never come before a light thing. But it's full of life and power. So I pray that your spirit would be the one that's speaking. Father, we hope to hear your voice, and we trust that we will. My greatest hope is that I will respond. That not only will these words rest on me with conviction or with comfort, but rather whatever it is that you are asking for in response, we would do so because you've given us the spirit and the power to do so. Father, we thank you. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who has gone before us. And that you are not only our Savior, but also our Lord and Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We may be seated. Perhaps it might be helpful if you close your eyes. You don't have to, but... I want you to emotionally go where God's people are, hearing this word from Micah. It is a time of great turmoil. God's people, Israel, are split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, often called Samaria or Israel, and the southern kingdom, often called Judah. For the northern kingdom, for the repentant, if there be any in the northern kingdom, they they realize the utter helplessness and hopelessness they have because God has said that his holy city is in Jerusalem. And to worship the one true God, to worship Yahweh, one must go to Jerusalem. To be right with God, one must come to Jerusalem. And if you're in the northern kingdom, Jerusalem is in a different nation, in the southern kingdom. And furthermore, Kings over you in the northern kingdom, perhaps prophets over you in the northern kingdom, have lied to you saying you can worship God in, in these places we've made, in these false altars. They, these false, they made false temples. They desecrated and commanded their people to worship false gods. Furthermore, they're not the best civil leaders. <laughs> Micah has indicted the northern kingdom already with prostitution, child sacrifice, greedy, oppressive rulers who still 
who steal land from their own citizens and steal inheritances, basically treat their citizens as property to abuse and use as they wish. On top of all that, a bloodthirsty, godless empire called Assyria has come through, destroying upwards of 40 cities and has come to the gate of Jerusalem, where the one true God is to be worshipped, taunting those who remain in Jerusalem. And if you are somehow still alive at this time, emotionally go there. Maybe you've caught wind of Micah's preaching. And if you happen to be among the upright, the leaders can't be trusted. It seems like even though there's a monarchy, it feels like anarchy is ruling. The spiritual leaders can't be trusted. Only a few people love the Lord enough and love people enough to preach the hard truth. And your very nation is invaded. Family members are likely lost. Some of them spiritually lost, having given themselves over to the bad, unholy, impure, false religion of its day. Other family members have been lost because they've been taken and abused, either by your own nation or by invaders. Other families have been used as child sacrifice. Nieces, nephews, grandkids, brothers, sisters, burned in the fire in worship of a false god. And mothers and sisters and daughters and nieces and maybe even men taken for abuse by the invaders. And you believe in God. You believe he is to be worshipped. You believe that one must obey him. But you feel hopeless and helpless. You can't get to Jerusalem. You have maybe heard of the Psalms of David, and while David was on the run from Saul or from his own son who sought to kill him, and David found that he was able to worship God, though he was not always near Jerusalem or the temple to do so, and so maybe you hold on to that. You hold on to the faith that God is who he says he is, that his love is a love that does endure forever, that God was a God who saved and liberated an entire nation of slaves from the most powerful kingdom of Egypt. But even so, Assyria is at the gate of Jerusalem. What will happen if Assyria breaks through? What will happen if God's holy city is wiped off the face of the map? God has said that he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and your people believe that he is the one true God, but things look dim. Things look hopeless. And besides all of the evil out there, all of the corruption, all of the cultish evil, false worship, false gods, maybe you also feel a little bit guilty because that evil out there is shared in a big enough measure for your comfort in here, in your heart. You're guilty too, and so you wonder and you lament at the dark, dark time. Who will save us? Is anyone coming to save us? Who will rescue us? Will there be another Moses to lead us from this horrible place? Will there be another, another David to slay the Goliath who is at the gate of Jerusalem? Where will there be another judge to deliver Israel? And everything is dark and lonely and sin and corruption and evil is winning. Evil has invaded the holy nation of God and his holy 
city is on the brink of falling. Who will save us now? I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like a sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord, as the leader. God will save us. God will rescue. God will come to our help. God will not let us down. God will spare us. God will look at all of our sin, misery, corruption, foreign evil invaders, corrupt social leaders, false religious leaders, and sin within and without. And God says, I will rescue the remnant of Israel, the upright ones, the holy ones, the pure ones, the righteous ones. I will save you. For those worrying about Jerusalem, we had it read to us last week, Assyria's forces were led by a king named Sennacherib. And he was at the gate of Jerusalem, mocking Yahweh, telling Jerusalem's people, don't listen to your king, Hezekiah. God's not coming to save you. But we find quite the opposite, that one night comes, and we read this account in 2 Kings 19, 35-36, That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. Can you imagine? That's not even two verses, but that's a lot to swallow. Again, mostly go there. Instead of some vague place in the kingdom, now you're in Jerusalem. It's sieged. No way in or out. Assyria is dropping propaganda. Don't let your king do this to you. You're sitting ducks. We don't want to kill you, but if your king doesn't surrender, it's not going to end up well. Give up this religious frenzy. God's not going to save you. Face it, we've made it to Jerusalem. It's not going to be impenetrable. And Isaiah is prophesying God can't be trusted. King Hezekiah is doing the right thing. We don't know how, but God will spare us. We shall not surrender to Assyria. Don't listen to them. What's going to happen? We have an entire army of people that I can see outside who so far have been victorious in invading our land and destroying 40-plus towns pitted against the words of a prophet and a king stuck inside this town telling me that God will spare us. It's what I can see with my eyes versus what I'm merely hearing in my ears. How can God spare us? Can you imagine the inner struggles inside Jerusalem? The want of a democracy in a monarchy. The subtle calls of rebellion in the ranks. King Hezekiah has lost it. Isaiah has lost it. I mean, you can hear them outside the gates, can't you? It's time for a new king, one that's not going to sacrifice this entire city to that army out there. And sure, some lay down and go to sleep, but I have to believe some are up to see it. 185,000. And among those men, 2 Chronicles 32, what Gwen read for us last week tells us that the Lord sent an angel who annihilated every brave warrior, leader, and commander in the camp of the king of Assyria. 
David slew a Goliath. The angel of the Lord slew every Goliath that Assyria had and sent Sennacherib, the commander who victoriously conquered 40-something cities home, only to die by the hands of his own son. Some commentators, indeed, see these two verses in Micah as a reference to this event. That God, in the form of an angel, and as the writer of 2 Kings put it, went out, or as Micah says, breaks open the way, passes before them, and is their leader, their king, who rescues them. Others will look at verse 12 of Micah chapter 2 and see that God is gathering, collecting, and bringing them together to do something, the remnant. And so they say Micah is talking about a prophecy and the return of them from exile. If you know your Old Testament history, we know that the northern kingdom of Israel is taken captive by Assyria. And then, as we just covered, Assyria falls short of taking out the southern kingdom where they get slaughtered at the capital in Jerusalem. About 200 years later, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar comes and wipes out Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and takes the southern kingdom into exile. And so, all of God's people are in exile for about 40 years until they are allowed to return by a Persian king. Because Persia took out Babylon. So many commentators look at this verse and say, God's gathering his people, Micah must be talking about a return from the exile. Two possible scenarios, and quite possibly that God and Micah and the people who heard them felt and believed that that was what was happening. Perhaps some sort of fulfillment of the angel's defense of Jerusalem in Micah's time or the return from exile. Just as whenever we read the same passage in different seasons of life and we hear different things, I guess we could say that about Micah 2, verses 12 through 13. Meanwhile, I have a confession to make. I come to the Bible with preconceived ideas, and one overarching preconception about the Bible I have is that it's 100% about Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> Primarily because I feel I have verses where Jesus himself said, hey, this book is about me. I'm going to go with what Jesus, how Jesus interprets the Bible, which means when I do interpreting, I interpret first, foremost, utmost, and almost always in light of Jesus. And I don't really apologize for it, actually. <laughs> nor do I think the scripture, or nor do I think that it does harm to the scripture to come to Micah and preach Jesus, because I believe that's what Jesus would do. Old and New Testament, front to back, every single page points to Jesus, and this prophecy not only finds its ultimate, but I believe its fullest and most credible fulfillment in Jesus. That is, other interpretations fall short of being fulfilled, because if it's about the angel wiping out Sennacherib's army, what's all that about gathering a remnant? And if it's about a return from exile, who's that leading through the gate as king when we know a Persian king named Cyrus simply issued a decree allowing the people to return home? But Jesus fulfills both of these verses without question in my mind. Jesus is shepherd and Jesus is king. The first verse paints a shepherd gathering his flock into one fold. We read in verse 12, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people. Jesus is shepherd. 
the good shepherd, as what was read for us today. I believe Micah is referring to Jesus who is gathering the church. And so you might say, well, how can Micah be talking about the church when he says that God is saying right here, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob, and I will collect the remnant of Israel. And I will respond, thankfully, Paul did similar interpreting in the, of the Old Testament and was asked the very same question. You have a Bible in front of you. We're going to camp a little bit in the New Testament. So go to Romans 9 to begin with. We're going to start with verse 6. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. And beginning in verse 6. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And uh, he starts with that because he's answering a hypothetical or a presupposed question or objection. And the objection here will be revealed in the coming words. And that is, did God's word fail? I thought he said he came to bless the race of Abraham. But Paul, you're saying Jesus is God in the flesh and his blessings are being given also to the Gentiles. So what happened? To the race of Abraham, did God's word fail? No, it didn't. But rather, Paul believes this. There in the middle of verse 6, second sentence, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is... It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Do you hear that? He's saying, simply having Jewish blood does not make you Jewish where the Bible is concerned. Simply having Israelite blood doesn't make you an Israelite where the Bible is concerned. Not all who are descended from Israel, that is, my great-great-grandfather is Jacob, who later changed his name to Israel, all the people who say that aren't part of Israel, in the sense of part of God's people. Simply, because God said to Abraham, I will bless your descendants does not mean that God was making a blanket statement to every single one of Abraham's descendants. Ishmael is a child of Abraham, but he's not a recipient of the blessing. Isaac is. And so if we want to say that God is concerned with an ethnic people, we must question why are Ishmael's descendants left out, though he shared the blood of Abraham. So again, verse 8. It is not the children of physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Well, what do you mean by children of promise, Paul? Well, Paul's glad you asked, so he goes on to explain. Verse 9. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also Rebekah received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our ancestor Isaac. For, through, for though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to election, might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So furthermore to prove, 
It's not an ethnicity thing, but a promise thing. Why isn't Esau considered a forefather in the faith? Why isn't Esau a recipient of the blessing? Because he comes from Abraham. He came from Isaac. He was born at the exact same time and from the same mother as Jacob, who is Israel. And Jacob is the one talked about back in Micah. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. If it is an ethnicity thing and not a promise, why is Esau not included in on the blessings when he has all the patronage of Jacob? Because it's a promise thing. Because not all who are descended from Israel, as in flesh and blood, are part of Israel's, God's chosen people. Paul is stating that there are people in Israel who are not Israelites because it's not a blood thing, it's a promise thing. Well, the, the argument goes on. Well then, Paul, if anyone can be Abraham's seed by some magical promise, if anyone can be Israelite and it's not from blood as you say, well, what is this promise? What is the magical way where people can suddenly become Israelite though they never descended from those bloodlines? Paul's so glad you asked that. In order to answer you, he's going to refer you, or I guess I'll refer to you, to Galatians chapter 3 in your Bibles. I had a few books, if you want to turn there. Galatians 3, beginning with verse 28. <clears throat> verse 28, Paul says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now personally, I don't think it can get any clearer than that. But I will try to make it clearer for you if need be. There is no Jew, as Paul says in Romans 9, it's not a flesh and blood Israelite thing, that God has been concerned with. Not all who descend from Israel, blood and flesh, are of Israel, the chosen people of God. The people of the promise. So who make up the chosen people of God? Verse 29 says it loud and clear, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. That's the promise. See, the promise of Abraham back in Genesis wasn't a promise to his flesh and blood. His ethnic descendants, if it were, if it was his ethnic descendants, we'd be thinking about Ishmael, about Esau, but they're not included in. Rather, Paul clarifies it for us earlier in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now Paul does really good nitpicking in the Bible because he says right here, he does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. Paul says, when God made the promise to Abraham to bless the nations, plural, not just Israel, God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed, singular, and that seed being Jesus. And through Jesus, these promises come to be, and through Jesus, we are all inheritors. And being an Israelite or non-Israelite does not matter, as Galatians 3.29 says. When the, when the Bible refers to the remnant of Israel, it's referring, I believe, to the inheritors of the promise. Paul closes the book of Galatians, and mind you, the church in Galatia is made up primarily of Gentiles. And he closes the book of Galatians, and Paul says to them in closing, 
For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. Jewish or not means nothing, period, says Paul. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy to the Israel of God. Interesting to me that Paul calls the church, the people, Abraham's seed, as he calls it back in Galatians 3, made up of physical descendants of Abraham and spiritual descendants through the promise. That group Paul calls here, quote, the Israel of God. Hmm. And so it's interesting, back in Micah 2, some, some key words, some significant language is being used. He says in Micah 2, verse 12, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like a sheep in a pen. Like a flock in the middle of its fold, it will be noisy with people. Notice, gather all of you, collect, and very interesting, bring them together. If Micah is talking about the Israel nation, we might be saying, well, he's probably referring to the northern and southern kingdom, but notice Micah uses two generic terms for the whole nation of Israel here. Jacob and Israel, as opposed to Samaria and Judah. And if we believe in Galatians 3.29 that seeds of Abraham are all those who belong to Christ, and if we believe that Paul, when he calls the gathered people of God, the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16, I believe Micah is about Jesus gathering his people. And as Lois read for us today in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Then this reminds me of Micah, but I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Gentiles, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus doesn't see two flocks and one shepherd. He sees one flock and one shepherd, the one flock of the people of promise, where distinctions between Jews and Gentiles don't matter. And one shepherd, the same shepherd who is gathering all of Jacob and collecting the remnant of Israel and bringing them together like sheep in a pen. A flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people. In other words, it will, there will be multitudes, like the multitudes promised to Abraham, like sand on the seashore. It will be noisy with people because Jesus is for all people. And the promise is for all people. And the promise is for the holy people of God, the Israel of God. How will the shepherd accomplish this? Well, we know from Micah 2.12 that God accomplishes it. He will gather. He will collect. He will bring them together. But the beauty in Micah chapter 2, verse 13 is that he will do it in the flesh. He will do it personally. He will leave his throne of heaven and come to earth in flesh and blood. As we read in verse 13, one who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord, as their leader. The shepherd will become a sheep, is what Micah is saying. The shepherd will advance before them. Their king will pass before them, the Lord as their leader. The Lord here being Yahweh. Micah is lightly brushing up on Exodus language. A king bringing a people out of captivity, one who breaks open the way just as Moses led a people out of captivity. And it's fitting that Micah moves from the language of a shepherd 
to the one who identifies with them so much that he passes before them. He's within them. He's the shepherd become the sheep. And near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in fact, actually before, is a man named John the Baptist. And I want to brush up on two things that he says relevant to our message today. First, he foreshadowed what Paul just put so bluntly as we studied in Romans and Galatians. John the Baptist says back in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore, he's talking to anybody coming to him for his baptism, Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And then listen to this, and don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. You hear that? Don't tell me you're Jewish, is what he's saying. God can make Jews from stones. Why would John say that? Because being Jewish doesn't matter. John's preparing the way for Jesus, who's going to bring all the people into one fold, and it's not founded on ethnicity, it's founded on a promise. And it's founded on faith in him, and it's founded on true repentance. The second thing that John the Baptist says that relates to our message today is that John identifies Jesus as a sheep, namely a lamb. John the Evangelist, in his account, would tell us that upon seeing Jesus the first time, John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is also speaking in Exodus Passover language, like Micah is. Because the Lamb of God is a phrase that goes all the way back to the Passover, where the Israelites are in bondage under their captors in Egypt, and after nine signs and wonders, after nine plagues, after nine opportunities for Pharaoh and Egypt to let Israel go, after nine pleas on behalf of Moses for Pharaoh to relent, God sends in the vein of the holy angel in Sennacherib's army, God sends a death angel to Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, particularly verses 5 through 13, tells us that God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites to take a male sheep or a male goat, from their herds, it's to be pure, unblemished, and upon killing it, they are to smear some of the blood over the doorposts of their houses, signifying that I too deserve to die when the death angel comes. But I have had this animal substitution for me. And God says when he sees the blood, he will pass over that house. And so John the Baptist is saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just Egypt, not just Israel. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. He's God become a man. He's a shepherd who has become the sheep. And as Jesus says, he lays down his life for the sheep. Not only is Jesus the lamb God, but he is also the door. It's interesting, back in Micah, that Micah says, One who breaks open the way will advance before them. That one, I believe, is Jesus. He is going before them. But then the latter part of the sentence moves focus over to them, as in they, so no longer talking about the one, but they will break out and pass through the gate and leave by it. I believe the one of the first part of that sentence becomes the gate. He is the gate they pass through and leave by. Jesus also says in John chapters 10, verses 7 through 10, I assure you I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come so that they might have life and have it in abundance. Jesus is the one who is the God in flesh who comes down and breaks open the way, advances before them, and is the gate where all people leave by. One has indeed come down and broke open the way and advanced before us. One has passed through before us and is our leader. One has become the gate that we pass through to go out and find life and find pasture. And if you come to the end of this message and you say to me, Kevin, if you're preaching the gospel, I've heard it. Then I have to respond, you truly believe it. Is it experiential? Because how many of you, if you're like me, you're the guy so many times I described in one way or another at the beginning of the message. It may not be foreign invaders, false worship, kids walking through the fire, prostitution, social leaders who take my land or lost family members, but in so many ways it is. It's leaders and social elites who mock God. It's politicians who legalize abortion up until they're born. It's creepy men who kidnap women and pimp them out in the sex trade. It's foreign nations who attack the people of God and take their head off if they don't denounce our King and Savior. And like the person at the beginning, what's worse is I look in the mirror in some small measure, but enough measure to discomfort me, I share in that evil. I have that sin. I have the weight of sin in my heart, the, the hopelessness of maybe I'm not a kingdom receiving judgment, and maybe I don't have a track record of 200 plus years of idolatry and cheating God and temple prostitution and sending kids to the fire, but the similarities made are all too real. Conviction. Maybe it's personal trials. Maybe it's sin being done against us. Maybe it's the fall being lived out in medical conditions, sin, trials, problems, injustice, and it's all too real. And you're like the guy at the beginning. Assyria is taking out neighboring cities, and you feel the hopelessness of knowing you serve and believe the one true God, but it feels like the enemy is at the gate. Push has come to shove, and you wonder, is he trustworthy? Is God faithful? In some general ways, I believe our relationship to God, to Christ, can be marked by hopelessness leading to hope. The hopelessness of our lot and the hope found solely in God's plan to save us. Because, friends, we, we bring sin to the table, God brings salvation. We, brings, we bring nothing to the table, God brings the feast. We bring deeds deserving of judgment to the table. God brings deeds deserving of commendation and merit to the table. We bring a fallen world to the table. He brings redemption. We bring injustice. He brings justice and mercy. We bring hopelessness to the table, and God brings hope. That's the God we serve. So when we are struck and convicted by sin, friends, listen, I needed this and I need this. When we are struck convicted, torn, and wrecked. Or when the word of God shuts my mouth so I have nothing to say but have mercy and forgive me. Or when we are struck, wrecked, and beat down by bad news, the doctor's report, the news report about the new laws, the injustice of it all, you need to know God's heart here. 
You need to know God's response to those who would feel the weight of sin and come to God in fear, wondering if there's any hope left, wondering if there's any chance of forgiveness, wondering if God would take an unholy sinner like me. You need to know God's heart when we come in fear and wonder, do you have my hairs numbered on my head? Do you truly care for me more than the sparrow? If you and I come to the table and say, is there any salvation left for our nation? Is there any hope for our dark times? Will the unborn have a voice? Will the social elites ever repent? Will the church ever be successful? Will I be taken care of? God uses three repetitions of one phrase as if he's trying to say something in verse 12. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel and I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its field. I will, I will, I will. The point? God stopped talking about Judah and Israel directly and their actions, which means he doesn't have to talk about what they bring to the table, sin, deserving judgment. Now God's talking about himself, which is always good news when God intervenes with his people. Friends, I have to believe that all hope can be lost and we can see dark, whether it be on the inside or out, or all of the above, God still will. God still will. God is still the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. God is still the door where his sheep enter in. And whatever it is, when it comes to you or me, God still will. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to me that, and it shouldn't amaze me, but no matter what passage of Scripture, you're speaking to me. It's like as if you see all and know all. It's like if you do have mercies that are new every morning. It's like we mean what we sing whenever we say words like, Great is thy faithfulness. Father, many of us came in here and we didn't know about Sennacherib. We didn't know about Assyria. We don't know much about that history, but we opened it up and found that you're speaking to us here and now. Father, we thank you that you are a personable God, that you love us, that you care more for us than sparrows, that you count every hair on our head, that you know when we rise, you know when we sleep, you know when we don't sleep. You know every fear that consumes us. And you show up to us and you say, I will take care of you. I'm still here. I haven't turned the lights out. Father, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your mercy, so undeserving. Thank you for your care. Thank you that you don't need us, but you want us. Father, would you help us to deliver that hope to other people? Many of us need it desperately, and we thank you for it. But we also know many other desperate people who need to hear it. So would you help us to share that love, whether it be through actions to begin with and eventually by words? Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.